0: Well, if you have your Bibles, please uh, open them up uh, this morning to uh, the book of Ephesians. You can turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 1. We will kind of begin our uh, journey uh, there this morning. And there are some things in life that you don't notice or think about until they are absent. This past uh, summer, in the middle of that heat wave in August... Uh, our air conditioning uh, at our house decided to go on strike uh, and take a uh, uh, about a five day break uh, and We became very aware of the blessing that air conditioning is and Libby and I promised if our kids ever complain. Uh, about being uh, hot or it not being cold enough in our house. We will share that story, probably to the point where they will get tired of it. Like, okay, Dad, you're going to tell us that story again. Uh, but, but air conditioning is one of those things that you take for granted uh, until it's gone. And, and others uh, of, a, of a similar nature, Your your indoor plumbing. Right? You ever ever think about uh, if you were born, you know, 150 years ago, what would it be like to go to the restroom uh, in an Idaho winter? Uh, I don't think there would nearly be as many Californians moving up here if, uh, you know, if we didn't have indoor plumbing or just uh, electricity, right? Uh, Or uh, your trash pickup. Has anyone ever forgotten to take the trash cans to the curb on that day of the week and then the trash just like piles up and you're like, I make a lot of trash. And so you take for granted the fact that the city comes by every single week uh, and takes your trash away. And then you are so grateful when you can finally get all of that trash uh, taken away. Uh, And again, there are those things in life that you do not truly appreciate until they are absent. And there's something else along those same lines, that is far more significant than air conditioning uh, or indoor plumbing or electricity. That, That if it is absent, we feel it. And that's unity. And we feel the absence of unity so significantly because disunity weighs so heavily upon our hearts to experience conflict Whether that's in our community, in our homes, at our workplace, on a a sports team, or in the church. When we experience that disunity, what is it that we long for more than anything else? Unity. We realize the importance of that. And so how do we maintain our unity as a church? And that's a a question that the Apostle Paul is constantly addressing in the New Testament. Because guess what? As young churches, guess what struggles they had? Unity. Uh, And so what we're going to see here uh, in the book of Ephesians is how Paul addresses that in the Ephesian church. And uh, as as he writes this letter to the Ephesians, uh, the, the letter folds uh, neatly in half, where the, the first three chapters that Paul writes uh, are about uh, the, the truth that is already present in the church at Ephesus, because uh, he's talking about our salvation. And so you could call chapters 1 through 3, Paul is addressing the position of, Uh, of or the christian's position in christ so he's talking about what is in chapters one through three and then in chapters four five and six he's going to talk about what ought to be so if chapters one through three is our position in christ four five and six are our practice in christ of what we are called to do based upon what is true of us already in our salvation and if you're there looking at Ephesians chapter 1, the, the first 14 verses form the introduction to the letter. Uh, and in that introduction, Paul writes about the salvation that we have in Christ. And it didn't begin when, when you started attending a church. It didn't begin when you uh, looked to Christ in faith. It began before the foundation of the world, what the Apostle Paul writes and then in verse 15 in chapter 1 through the end of uh, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is going to explain our position in Christ. And if you, if you make notes in your Bible, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is a phenomenal passage that summarizes the truth of the gospel. That we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from God... But while we were alienated from him, God acted. I love uh, how that that, that turn in verse 4 in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, say that we were children of wrath. We were separated from God, dead in our transgressions. What what are the first two words in verse 4? But God. God acted while we were rebelling against him, and he acted by sending his son To live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, and then to rise again on the third day, making uh, an atonement, paying the penalty for our sins. And now uh, everybody who looks to him in faith is rescued, reconciled, and redeemed. We are saved not by the works that we do, but by grace through faith, as it says in verses 8 and 9 there in Ephesians chapter 2. And then... Beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of chapter 3, Paul writes about this new reality of the church. uh, That that this is now because we have been saved out of our sin, we have been brought into the church. And And this passage that I'm pointing to right now... Chapter 2, verse 11 through the end of chapter 3 is such an important passage right now in our contemporary culture because it speaks about the unity of the church. It has already been accomplished in Christ, that Jesus has already unified us and brought Jew and Gentile, really anyone and everyone who believes in him is brought together. This is well summarized beginning of verse 14 in chapter 2. Where he says, "For he made, where he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body." through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So so Paul's whole argument at the end of chapter 2 and all of ver- chapter 3 is, as a church, we are united in Christ. Every single one of us as believers is united to Jesus, and so he's kind of the, the spoke of the wheel. If every Christian is a spoke, we're all connected to Christ as our hub. And that's what Paul is addressing. And then he gets to Ephesians chapter 4. And that's the where I want to, to look this morning and to, to study this morning. And again, Paul is transitioning from writing about what is to what ought to be. Have, hey, this is what is true. And now this is what you need to do in response to that truth. And in verses 1 through 16, in chapter 4, Paul's going to instruct the church how they are supposed to preserve this unity that Christ has accomplished for them. So this is how you keep the unity is what is going to be the message here. Uh, and namely, what we're going to see that is that Christ has given gifts to his church. And he's given gifts to the church to help preserve, build, and unify that church. And so read with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. We're going to read through verse 16, and then we'll uh, kind of look at what this is saying. But chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Actually, if we can pause right there. But Paul begins here. So he he gives this exhortation uh, of we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And what have we been called to? Unity in Christ. Uh, So he says, hey, you walk in this way, Uh, And he, he identifies some characteristics of that worthy walk, right? That we are to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, enduring one another in love. And then we are to be eager to protect the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? What Christ died for, we are called to maintain in our church. We don't have to create the unity because it already exists because of what Christ has done. But we're called to to maintain it and be eager to preserve it. And then Paul is going to continue in verses four through six, and he's going to explain the basis of our unity. Look at how many things he lists off. He's going to list off seven things that unify us as a church. It says there is one body, speaking of the church, and one spirit, speaking of the spirit who indwells every single believer. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse five: "One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all." all right, so he, he, this is the, the basis for our unity. That we have a united faith. There is only one Lord, one faith, one back. All of these things, we don't have to be divided over them. There is a singular faith that we are to unite around. And then, in verses 7 through 16, which is really where I want to, to land and dive into this morning. This is how they are going to preserve that unity. Again, Christ has accomplished the unity. This is how we are to preserve the unity. In verses 7 through 16. And Paul writes this, "...but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, what we're going to, to see is that the key to preserving unity in the church is utilizing the gifts that Christ has given but but how is it that the, the gifts of Christ serve to build and preserve and unify the church? Well, what we're going to, to see here uh, this morning as we look at verses 7 through 16 is there's going to be this uh, logical chain that, that Paul is going to, to unfold. And There's four links in the chain, and it's going to lead us to understand uh, what Christ has given to us and what we're supposed to do with it. Uh, ever been given a gift, and you're like, "I have no idea what this is. What, what do you want me to do with this?" Uh, sometimes we, we are that way, but but th- Paul's going to unfold this for us and say, "Hey, here is what Christ has given, and here's the significance. This is what you're supposed to do with what Christ has given to us, uh, and He's given us these gifts." And we're going to see four links in this chain, and the first link. Uh, Is found in verses 7 through 10. Uh, And it's very simple. It's just that Christ gives spiritual gifts to his church. And in verse 7, what we see is that every believer says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every single believer has been given spiritual, at least one spiritual gift uh, and possibly uh, multiple spiritual gifts in a unique blending. And it's been given to us according to the measure of Christ's grace. Whatever Jesus wanted to give us, he has given to us and gifted us uh, in a particular way according to his plan for our lives of what he wants us to do and to be in the church. And that's the, the main premise. And then in verse eight, Paul is wanting to prove his point. And so he, he in trying to to demonstrate and prove that Christ gives spiritual gifts to the church, he points back to psalm sixty eight in the old testament uh, and at the psalm sixty eight is a psalm of victory it 's a psalm of uh, that shows that uh, our Lord has been victorious over all of his enemies uh, and he quotes psalm sixty eight verse eighteen there in verse eight. And it says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And you're kind of like, where is this coming from? Why are you? quoting that verse right here. Well, this this is the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting, that when uh, Jesus died, uh, he went uh, into uh, the grave, or really into the belly of the earth, a place in the Old Testament referred to as Sheol, which was a place of the dead. And that's where all of the dead were prior to uh, Christ's resurrection. Uh, And so what Paul is saying is uh, that Christ, when he died, he went into the the heart of the earth, into Sheol. Uh, he did a victory lap, which we see in First Peter. Uh, and then he ascended on high. The one who went down is the one who went up. And when he went up, he led a host of captives, those who were uh, ensnared by death and in Sheol uh, in the heart of the earth. Christ led up to heaven to be with him. There's so much more to say about that. I know I'm getting some looks like there's a whole depth of theology here. We don't have to, the time to to dive into it right now, but it's, it's very, uh, very interesting. So when Christ ascended, Paul's point is, what did he do? He gave gifts to men. The victorious Christ, when he went to heaven, he said, all right, now I'm going to give out gifts. And the the picture here is that of a a Roman general. If you were victorious in battle, uh, you got to come home to Rome and they would have a victory parade. Uh, and you would dispense uh, all of the the spoils of war that you won in your victory. And that's what the uh, Apostle Paul is saying Christ has done. The victorious Christ has given gifts to his people as he uh, ascended into heaven. And the victorious Jesus has given gifts to each and every believer, uh, and really verses nine and ten are a commentary on verse eight explaining uh, who the one is who ascended of the one who went up is or the one who went down is the one who went up, uh, and he is the one who has given uh, a diversity of gifts to his church, going back to verse seven uh, and so in the church, what we have. Is not uh, we have unity, but we don't have uniformity. Right as as I read in that passage in First Corinthians twelve, if we were all feet, there was a we would be a very strange looking body, and really we would be an unhealthy body. Now, but we need all of the different parts of uh, our church body functioning as we have been uh, designed and gifted according to the Lord for us to be a healthy body. Uh, And so we have uh, a unique gift in each and every one of us, and so we all have a part to play. Uh, we can't just say, well, I'm going to take my gifts and go home, uh, and I'm not going to play here. Uh, that, that's not the the vision that, that God has for his church, but each one who has been gifted according to the measure of Christ is called to use that gift for the glory of God and for the building up of the church. And this is the, the, the first link in the chain. Again, it's really, really simple. Christ has given spiritual gifts to his church as the one who has been victorious uh, and then ascended. Up, He's dispensed gifts to every single believer. But then that leads us to the second link in the chain, uh, and that's seen in verse 11. Okay, And, and we could say that the, this link is that the gifts Christ gives are gifted men. Because what is it that's named uh, in verse 11? It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Uh, and so what in, in other places in Scripture, uh, what's emphasized are the different kinds of spiritual gifts that are given to the church. But what's emphasized here are the different kinds of gifted believers that are gifted or that are given to the church. Uh, and Paul is going to... Uh, to describe in a particular way the, the function that some of the gifted believers are to uh, operate and perform in the church. And he's going to list four offices here. Okay, And the first of them is uh, the apostles. And he gave some as apostles. Every Christian is gifted, but he gave some as apostles. And, and the, the meaning of apostle is really just a messenger. Someone who is a, a delegate, someone who is uh, sent by someone else uh, to someone else. Uh, and this word can either be used uh, of ordinary people. Paul says that he sent uh, Epaphroditus as a messenger, same word, apostolos, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Can, it can refer to an ordinary person or it can uh, refer to kind of a, an extraordinary person. What I mean by that is uh, apostle with a capital A. Someone who was specifically sent by the Lord Jesus to represent him. Uh, and those apostles with a capital A uh, were the foundation of the early church. If you uh, are there with me uh, in Ephesians, just look over to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. As, as he's speaking of the unity of the church, that, hey, we are all a single uh, building, So in verse 19 in chapter 2, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God uh, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Uh, and so the the emphasis here is that the the apostles were foundational. Uh, they were the to called to start the early church and to, to build it up uh, from there. Uh, and th- would say this office of apostle has. Uh, Ended in the first century. It's not something that has continued on into the present day because to be an apostle, and I mentioned this kind of during our Q&A during the equipping hour, you had to be an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, If you kind of write down uh, Acts chapter 1. Uh when the eleven apostles uh were deciding who should who should replace Judas. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, uh says, Hey, let someone else take his place. But how do they how are they going to uh evaluate and identify someone else who should be an apostle in place of Judas? Well they said uh this in, in Acts chapter one, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. So one of the men who have uh accompanied us during all the time That the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John... Until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness in his resurrection. So part of the the qualification of being an apostle uh, was that you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. And so there aren't any more uh, apostles. They were foundational. uh, And apostles kind of go right along with uh, that next office that the apostle Paul lists there. He says he gave uh, the apostles and some as Prophets And in the early church, uh, there were specific people who were appointed to give revelation from God to uh, a church body in the same way that the prophets functioned in the Old Testament, to give revelation from God to the nation of Israel. And these uh, prophets probably stayed in uh, a local congregation, uh, kind of in contrast to the apostles who were uh, traveling about and planting churches. And if you read through the book of Acts, uh, you see several men uh, who were identified as prophets in the early church, including uh, Barnabas, Paul, Simeon, a man named Lucius, another man named uh, Manen, Manen, M-A-N-E-N, and then Agabus, Judas, and Silas. Uh, And it's interesting to note that Paul is both an apostle and a prophet. Uh, and uh, this office of prophet is also mentioned uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 and should be seen and understood as found as a foundational office and one that has not continued uh, throughout the duration of uh, the church age. And so the, the apostles and the prophets uh, were the foundation and they eventually handed the baton off to the next two offices listed here uh, in verse 11. Uh, the third office is uh, the office of evangelists. And the, the work of an evangelist is to preach and explain the gospel to those who have not heard it who have not believed uh, in the Lord Jesus and uh, God has gifted some people to be really gifted evangelists right and usually those are people that were like man why can't I be more like that person who just seems so bold and so winsome uh, and they have so many successful evangelistic conversations uh, and so you begin to see someone gifted in that way now we are all called to to share the gospel we are all called to be evangelists but not always uh, we will not always be as As successful as those who are gifted with the gift of evangelism. And one of the first deacons, Philip, uh, he is known as Philip the Evangelist. You kind of know what he's good at when that's your nickname. Uh, And then Paul also commanded Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And again, there'll be, there's going to be some among us uh, who are gifted and, and passionate in that way. Uh, and we want to, to you guys to identify that, and we want to turn you loose. Uh, we want to, to send you and encourage you to go and, and do the work of an evangelist. Again, we are all called to go and share the gospel, but there are going to be some who are particularly gifted along those lines. Uh, and then there is a, a fourth and final uh, office mentioned here in uh, verse 11. Uh, and you're like, but wait, Thomas, there's, there's two words there, the, the shepherds and teachers. And I think what Paul is saying is there's really just a, a singular office mentioned here. Uh, and that word for uh, shepherd uh, is the idea of a pastor. Uh, And again, that's the the big role and the big focus of pastoral ministry. And the Greek word uh, that is used there for and uh, can also be used uh, to explain something uh, to a greater degree. It's kind of the idea of shepherds, in particular teachers, showing us what's the primary function of someone who's called to be a shepherd. They are called to teach so where an evangelist is focused on uh proclaiming the gospel to those who have not heard and believed uh the the pastor the shepherd or teacher is focused upon uh teaching and unfolding God's uh, truth to uh the people of God who have already believed uh and that is uh the you know these four offices that uh, Christ has given to the church he's, he's given spiritual gifts and he's also given gifted men to uh, to be a part of the church and but how are we to view these gifted men OK, that's a very important question, because oftentimes people look at uh, the church and their understanding of church is kind of like, okay, uh, is that, hey, you guys are you're sitting in your chairs there. The the, the predominant view has been, hey, you're sitting in the chairs. You guys are the fans. You just watch uh, the players on the field who are the pastors. Uh, and uh, the, in, within this view of the church, it's uh, the people in the pews who watch and cheer on the pastors as the pastors do all of the ministry. Uh, and so the pastors would be the players in the field and you would be uh, the fans in the stands and, and you uh, cheer on uh, the pastor. But, you know, this is the view that has been predominant in the the American church for most of the 20th century. And uh, for you guys, that, that may sound like a wonderful, uh, view of the church because you, you guys are, are sitting, <laughs> uh, but, but for the pastor, let me, let me tell you that there is no way that one pastor or two pastors or three or 10 will ever be able to do all of the work of the ministry in a local church. Uh, and, and that view of the pastors being the only ones who do the ministry, uh, It's an unbiblical view. And and it's interesting. Both of my grandfathers were pastors. uh, And and both of them ministered in churches with this view and this perspective. Uh, And and I've heard a myriad of stories about what takes place in this type of church culture. Where it's, uh, no, the pastor, you do all of the ministry. Uh, And uh, what... What eventually happens is uh, there is no love in the congregation for one another. Because if there's a need, who's supposed to fulfill the need? The pastor. And if the pastor doesn't, who can you be angry with? The pastor. Uh, And so you begin to see uh, how rather than building the body up in love, that serves to actually divide and embitter the whole congregation. And then what does that do to the pastor? How does he feel? I, I, I will never be able to live up to all of your expectations. I, I will never be. I, I want to get to know all of you. I'm always like, yeah, let's go have dinner. Let's do all. I'll never be able to have dinner with every single one of you guys every single night of the week. It's, it's impossible. And in the same way, I won't be able to, to minister to all of you. Bruce won't be able to do it. Us, our combined forces won't be able to do it. And so the the predominant view of ministry in the American church over the last hundred years, it ends up destroying churches rather than building them up. And if that's not how the church is to function, if that's not how the gifts of Christ are to be exercised, what's the right way? What is it that we're called to do? Well, I'm glad you asked because that leads to the third link in our chain. So we've seen Christ gives spiritual gifts to his church. The gifts that he gives are gifted men. And then thirdly, what we're going to see in verses 12 to 14 is that gifted men equip the saints. Look with me at, at these verses. So these men are, are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And so here in these verses, what we see is the purpose of the gifts. All right now we know, okay, we've been given these gifts. Now what do I do with them? Well, here's the answer. It is that the, the the gifted men, the pastors, evangelists, are, are given to the church so that the saints of the church can be equipped. So that they can be taught and trained to... What does it say in verse 12? To carry out, to do the work of ministry, literally the work of service. That's God's vision for ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is what the gifted men have been tasked to do, to equip, to train, to prepare every believer in the church to minister according to the spiritual gifting that you have. And again, every single one of us has spiritual gifting from Christ. And then verse 13 informs us of the duration of this equipping. How long is this training and equipping go on? Well, it it continues on until we reach three things or attain these three things. Number one is the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the faith being that same unity that Paul mentioned uh, in verse 3, right? What is it that we are to be eager to, uh, to defend and maintain? The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are to, uh, to build up and to, to be built up until we reach out and live out what is true in our church. Till we reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So each one of us have a personal and experiential knowledge and relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that's the calling of the equipping. And ultimately, we will be built up into, the ESV says, to mature manhood. The, the, in the Greek, it's the idea of the mature man. That we are all to be built up into maturity. Uh, and this is the the focus of us as individual believers that we are all called to grow to maturity and this is this was paul 's mission in his uh ministry we see it in Colossians chapter one verse twenty eight uh, speaking of Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in christ that that's that's the goal of ministry to train and equip for all of you to grow to maturity as individuals and then that last statement in verse 13 to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ speaks about us collectively as a church so individually we're to grow to maturity and then collectively we're to reach that fullness uh, and measure of christ as we are all built up into the fullness of christ so the, the picture of ministry that that's given to us here is dramatically different than uh, the normal American church. Kind of going back to my illustration earlier, rather than viewing uh, our you guys as being in the stands and, and Bruce and I are out on the field just throwing the ball together, uh, that's that's a boring game of catch. Uh, we we need to see and understand we are all out there on the field. There's not supposed to be anybody in the stands. OK, uh, we are all out on the field and, and the, the the pastors, the, the elders, the evangelists, we, we're, we are the player coaches that we are both on the field and we're the ones setting the game plan and calling the plays and coaching up. Oh, let's try it this way. Uh, and we're, we're there to encourage you and strengthen you. Like, yeah, we're, what do coaches make you do sometimes? run and work out and and work on muscles that you've never uh worked on before and kind of put you outside of your comfort zone hey this is where we're going to go and and so the rather than saying that the pastors are just the players on the field the pastors uh, are the player coaches and everyone's on the field then that's what we have to see this is the biblical model for ministry and when this happens the church grows to maturity the church grows in unity and we grow up into what christ is calling us to be but also notice something else in verse 14 something that is so important and something that that i think is extremely applicable right now in our current cultural climate there is another benefit that is seen in verse 14 kind of paul states the obvious when we grow to maturity We are adults. And if we're adults, we are not children. We're not infants anymore. And then he describes what children in the faith are like and what happens to kids. We are not infants, no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. I remember uh, in my days as a youth summer camp director working with elementary kids. We went to Six Flags Hurricane Harbor and we went into the wave pool. Uh, And one of the the elementary uh, boys wasn't a, a good swimmer and he... He, he was in there right along uh, with me, and w- what 's amazing is in those wave pools they generate these waves, and, and the water isn 't that deep, but sometimes you go from the water being waist high to being you know over your head, and it just forces you up and you know i 'm an adult, so it, the, the waves don 't impact me as much, but i 'm with this uh little little Boy who's about in the fourth grade, and the water is just wreaking havoc upon him. And he was right next to me and holding on. And I, I turn around for a second uh, and then turn back around, and he's underwater. And, and the water's in his mouth, and then the water's coming out of his mouth. And then I, I drag him up to the shore. And children are, are tossed and impacted by waves to an even greater degree than a mature adult is. And what we see here, when the spiritual gifts are being utilized, when when the, the, the leaders in the church are equipping the saints for the work of ministry, and we are all built up into maturity, that there is a natural defense that that church has against some things that come at us in the world. Because what is said here, and it was amazing, I'd never looked closely at this passage. You kind of read through, and then I, I really studied it in the Greek. And when it, you look and understand what he is speaking about, when he says, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by end every wind of doctrine or every wind of teaching, the idea is that immature believers are going to be tossed everywhere any teaching that comes at them, they're going to receive and believe because they don't discern what's true and what's false. But those who are mature will be able to discern that. And it's so important because those waves that he identifies are, he says, by human cunning, he says, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And uh, it's, uh, easy to understand the overall meaning of what he's saying there, but the exact translation from the Greek is really awkward. Uh, and and in looking at it, like the, he makes two statements. The first one's really easy. When he speaks about human cunning, uh, he speaks about he, he, the trickery of men, uh, and there are the, part of the the waves that that beset us and are constantly inundating us is the trickery of men. Uh but then the second statement, the ESV translates it that by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Uh and my translation would be by craftiness with the scheming of error. Uh and, and what's highlighted here, the craftiness is is the idea or cunning is, is the idea of being willing to do anything in a negative sense. That you're ready for anything, you're ready to to deceive or do whatever is necessary to get what you want. And the, the word for deceitful is that a cunning process that seeks to deliver up to error. And if, if you keep your finger here, look over to Ephesians chapter six, verse eleven, because uh, that same word for uh, deceitful is used also in chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the idea of his deceit. Uh, and the, the schemes that we face are not only the, the schemes of man, but also the schemes of the devil, of him trying to influence and, and wipe us out. And then uh, in the ESV, when it says that by craftiness in deceitful schemes... Uh, the the word that they translate as schemes is more literally the error. Uh, It's the idea of wandering from the path of truth, and it points to the one who deceives, the one who leads astray. It's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, where it says that, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. It's the same root word there. So we we get this picture uh, that the as the church is uh, being built up it's into maturity that church is going to be stable and that church isn't going to be uh, whipped around and inundated and impacted by every major fad in the culture around us because that's where we feel the waves coming and again immature believers are going to be tossed about and And say that the mark of an immature church is going to be that they're going to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine as well. That that whatever the big thing in the culture at that point in time is also going to be the big thing uh, in the church. And that's not what it is called to be. And what we see is that when... God's gifts to the church are rightly utilized, that pastors are are called to equip the saints uh, and saints are called to be equipped. And that is the the big takeaway here, the big implications that Christ has given shepherds uh, and the shepherds need to shepherd. Uh, and they do that by by teaching. And as uh, the whole uh, church is uh, equipped for the work of ministry and they begin to do that, the whole church is going to be built up and unified uh, and brought to maturity in Christ. And so again, if these two, two big takeaways that the, the pastors are called to equip— Uh, and we want to do that as, as Tom mentioned in the announcements, we are working to, to put more and more resources on our church website, uh, to put all of our sermon series to put all of our equipping, hour classes. Uh, and then we also have an equipping hour right before the service from nine to 10 AM. We have a class called the equipping hour. Did you guys see what we did there from Ephesians four equipping hour? We're called to equip. Okay. It's a joke for pastors, but, uh, uh, but we are we are laboring and striving to equip you to be able to do the work of the ministry. But then, I guess the the, the challenge and the question I have for you is: Do you guys want to be equipped? Do, do you want to grow? Do you do you want to pursue maturity, or do you want to remain as a child and an infant in the faith, being tossed around and impacted constantly? By the deceitful schemes of man and the devil around us? Are, are you willing to grow? Are you willing to pursue maturity? Again, a big part of that is being in our, our growth group. That's where you're going to be, shepherd. That's where you're going to be taught to study God's Word, to, to, to grow in your discernment and your application of the, God's truth. Those are big things. And, and my prayer is that That I would be faithful, that Bruce would be faithful, that any and all of our future elders would be faithful in equipping you for the work of ministry. And and my prayer for you is that you would be receptive to that equipping, that, that you would desire that and that you would see that you play a part in the ministry of the church, that you're not just in the stands, that you're out here on the field with us, serving Christ, seeking to glorify him taking in all that you can and seeking to apply all that you can. And so what we've seen so far, these first three links, is that Christ gives gifts to the church. Those gifts are gifted men, and then the gifted men are called to equip the saints. And then the final link is this, that the equipped saints minister in the church. This is in verses 15 and 16. Again, the, the, the final result, the spiritual growth of the church is every member of the church is using their spiritual gift, right? You see that the, the church grows and is built up into love as when each part is working properly, right? When, when each of you uh, find out what your spiritual gift is and then begin to to live out and utilize that spiritual gift for the glory of God and for the good of others, that is when we all as a church body will grow up into love and unity and maturity in Christ. That is what we are called uh, to do. And so part of that is also being to figure out our spiritual gift, right? Now, the bumper on a car would make a terrible seat, Right? It would not be very comfortable. Uh the gas tank would be a poor steering wheel. Uh and uh the seats would not be very useful as tires. Well what what is it that makes a, a car run smoothly on the road? That all of the parts uh are installed the right way and that all of the parts are functioning in the way that they were designed to function, that they're doing uh what they were meant to do. And so what is it that's going to make the church run smoothly and operate well when all of us uh, are doing what we've been called to do, when we are utilizing the gifts that we have been given by the Lord and we are running smoothly? That's what's going to help us grow in maturity and grow in unity. But some of you may say, how do I figure out my spiritual gifts? It's a hard thing to figure out, right? And I know that sometimes there's that pressure, but what is my spiritual gift? What am I supposed to be doing? Right? So a couple, couple things on that. If you're looking to figure out your spiritual gift, number one, begin by reading the Bible. Uh, begin by understanding what spiritual gifts are and what they aren't. OK, uh, I got to talk with Pastor Groves because he thinks he's the, the pastor of foods and like that's not a spiritual that's not a spiritual gift. Right. Everybody can eat, but that's not that's not his calling uh, in life. He serves the, the church faithfully in that, but uh, that's not a spiritual gift. But what are where would I look to find spiritual gifts? Write these passages down. Read First Corinthians 12 verses eight through ten. And in that same chapter, verses twenty-eight through thirty. And then also read uh, chapter thirteen in First Corinthians, verses one through three. And then two more two more passages: Romans twelve, verses six through eight, and First Peter chapter four, verses ten and eleven. Those are those are great passages that list out. Uh, Spiritual gifts and begin to see uh, what the spiritual gifts are. So, number one, read your Bible. Secondly, pray and ask God for wisdom in, into your own heart and life, uh, and seek to understand uh, what you enjoy and what you're good at. Uh, and oftentimes, what you'll be able to see what your spiritual gifts are by just noticing what, where what are my passions. And what am I really good at? You, you'll notice your spiritual gifts when you can accomplish something w- with uh, much less effort and time than someone else, maybe. Right? And sometimes you have uh, gifts that aren't necessarily your passion, but you need to serve in that way. Uh, I am I'm gifted administratively, but I don't burn for administration. I, I, I love uh, to study and read and do all of these things. Am I able to administrate? Yes, the Lord has gifted me in that way. But that's not what I wake up for in the morning. Like I can't wait to make spreadsheets. Uh, but that, that's sometimes the way that I'm called to serve the church. Uh, and, and so seeing and understanding uh, that. What is it you're passionate about and what is it you're good at? Uh, and then I would say, so read your Bible, pray. Then thirdly, serve in various areas. Go and try things out, because sometimes uh, you think you have one spiritual gift, uh, and like, oh, I have the gift of teaching kids, and you get in the classroom, and you're like, this is not what I thought it was, uh, and you're like, okay, uh, I need to figure out something else, and, and, and other times, people say, oh, I have the gift of teaching, and you, and you get up, and you teach people, and then someone lovingly comes alongside you and says... This might be your gift, but you need to work out more on it. Like you, you need to hit the weights and grow as a teacher uh, within that. And, and so being able to to serve in a variety of areas helps you to see, oh, you know, what? I really enjoyed this or I didn't enjoy that. And that taught me patience and that really sanctified me. Uh, and sometimes that, that needs to happen for us to be able to figure out our spiritual gifts. So read your Bible, uh, study spiritual gifts. Secondly, pray and ask God for wisdom and insight into your own heart and your own passions. Thirdly, serve in various areas. And then fourth, ask mature believers around you what they see your gifting to be. Uh, And 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 value their input, because, again, sometimes we we think we're gifted in one way and we're really not. And we need that that help and that insight. I appreciate this quote uh, from Pastor Ray uh, Stedman uh, on spiritual gifts. He says somewhere the idea has found deep entrenchment in Christian circles that doing what God wants you to do is always unpleasant. And that Christians must always decide or make choices between doing what they want to do and being happy uh, and doing what God wants them to do and being completely miserable. He says nothing could be more removed from the truth. The exercise of a spiritual gift is always satisfying, enjoyable. Uh, It's an enjoyable experience, and though sometimes the occasion on which it is exercised may be an unhappy one. Again, God hasn't gifted you in a way that you're going to serve and be miserable. That's not your spiritual gift. If you're like, I'm just uh, being drugged backwards through the mud, like this is not, that's not your spiritual gift. You're you're going to enjoy the way that Christ has gifted you. And and part of our role as a pastor uh, is uh, to uh, teach you and equip you and also help you figure out, okay, where are your strengths and where are your passions, and usually where those line up we, we want to encourage you uh, to serve and minister uh, to the body. And once you, you figure out your spiritual gifts, you're not called to, to sit on the sideline. Uh, you, you're called to use your gifts, right? Uh, I'm sure we've all received like Christmas uh, gifts or birthday gifts, and they're like sitting off in a closet somewhere you're very, very safely, uh, and we've never used it. But that, we, we can't do that with our spiritual gifts. Whatever they may be, we have to utilize them because when we see all that this passage is saying, there there is a message here to you all, and that is the church needs your spiritual gifts. Our church won't grow to maturity. We won't grow in unity if there are people who are saying, I don't need to serve. I don't need to be a part. Our our church will, will grow and Mature and unify and preserve unity as each one of us are serving in the manner that we have been called to serve, and we must all also eva- or battle the temptation uh, to hold ourselves up as the measuring stick. Uh, that's what the, that passage in First Corinthians 12 was like, right? Uh, so if, if I have the, the the gift of you know. Uh, teaching uh, I shouldn't evaluate everybody else based upon my gifting right because then I say well those who can't teach they're of no value that's not what God says. That's not what he says about his church, that uh, those who are uh, other parts of the body are just as significant and just as important uh, as those who, who have the more prominent gifting. The, the, the whole church, uh, every single individual needs to exercise their spiritual gift to the to the blessing and building up. Of the church Uh, and our task as a pastors as the pastoral team is to train and equip you and then we're all out there in the field of ministry together uh, fulfilling needs caring for one another and then also going out into uh, the world. Uh, and so th- th- that's the, the big message of this passage. Uh, and, and the whole context is the preservation of unity. Uh, how do we maintain our unity in the church when each member is ministering? And well, back in uh, 1987, uh, in National Geographic magazine, there was a a feature uh, there in the magazine on the Arctic wolf. And the author of that uh, Piece in the magazine was a man named David uh, Mech, and he described how uh, he, he was uh, watching a, this uh, pack of wolves. That had, there were seven wolves. Uh, The pack of wolves had uh, targeted uh, these musk oxen calves. And there were seven uh, musk oxen calves, uh, and they were being protected by 11 adult uh, oxen. Uh, And when the the wolves began to approach, uh, the adult oxen uh, formed a a semicircle around uh, the, the calves. Uh, and they, uh, because all of the uh, eleven adults uh, gathered together their shoulders, and then they actually faced their their rear hooves outward, ready to kick any wolf that approached. They were t- they were able to to keep the wolves at bay. Now, because they were they were unified uh, in defending uh, their young. But then one of those uh, oxen broke ranks. One of them took off, and then all of the other adults scattered into little groups as well. Uh, And when the wolves saw that, they approached again, uh, and there was a little bit of a skirmish in terms of the the wolves going after some of the adults, and the adults eventually ran. And and when they ran, uh, guess what happened to those little oxen calves? All of them. Well, we're taken by the wolves. And you see the importance of, of unity in the church. If one of us isn't doing and fulfilling our spiritual gift, the, the church is not going to be as strong, not going to be able to, to defend ourselves. And again, I'm going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. But guys, we are being inundated right now by the world around us with, with thoughts and ideas, with, with deceitful scheming. And we can't break rakes. We have to stand together against uh, this human cunning. And there's an infinite number of things that, that can attack our unity. And I can't go through all of them, right? Because there's an infinite number. And Paul couldn't do that with the Ephesian church either. But you know what? Paul warned the Ephesian elders that there would be wolves that would come after them, even from among those very elders. Wolves are always going to be coming after the church. And so we see, how do we preserve our unity? How do we defend ourselves? Well, it's by utilizing our spiritual gifts and by the whole church being built up as every single one of us is ministering. That's how we will continue to grow to maturity, how we will preserve our unity, and ultimately how we will glorify Christ the, the the vision for ministry here is not two two pastors ministering to 150 people but 150 people ministering to one another that, that that's the goal and the vision and may we all be willing to be equipped may we all be willing to serve according to our gifting and may we all look to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as our head and may he continue to build us up as we minister for his glory Rather.